The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. We'll get started now. I don't know about how many of you were raised in uh, one of the Christian churches. I was raised as a Catholic and had a you know relatively good experience as a kid in that environment. And uh, it always it was interesting. I was saying to a friend today how uh, back as a child, having that deep imprint from being raised in the church in the Catholic Church, it always seemed like. Good Friday was sort of dark, stormy, that God was maybe upset about what had happened. And it always seemed like it did this morning. I don't know if you noticed, after the rain yesterday, Easter morning, fresh, sunshine, felt, you know, just... And of course, I'm sure you realize that so much of what Easter is, is comes well before Christianity, even Judaism, right? It was just... Uh, it's just an archetype, a reminder of transformation that in the winter things that seem dark and dry and brown or white in the case of Minnesota, you know, and then all of a sudden something changes and life comes bursting forth and the birds return and things start to move again. And uh, probably since... For a long time, for sure, human beings have been moved, have been touched, have recognized this possibility of change, putting it in a positive light, not just change in a bad way, like you're born and then you die, or you know, you're in relationship and then it breaks apart, or you had a, had a job and then you lose the job. But there's a positive thing about change, right? Weight of suffering sometimes is released. Things that are broken can get repaired, right? So it's just interesting to look at transformation because that's what spiritual practice is all about. And Buddhism in particular is interested in the skillful means. I think you can even say the technology of transformation. And uh, in modern... Western psychology, they've really made much more of a science of change and the change of habit and how sticky, how persistent habits are. It's not easy, I'm sure you've noticed, it's not easy to change habit, like around exercise, around eating, around how we relate to certain people. I see this all the time in, you know, like in relationship to my family or other sort of people that I have a long, that I have history with, we get in a groove, you know, there's a groove cut in both of our hearts, both of our minds, even in terms of how the neurons are wired in our brains. And it's hard to step outside. It doesn't matter if, you know, that groove got cut when we were seven years old. Now, whatever, 50 years later or more, that groove has had a lot of time to be repeated and cut a little deeper. And it's just hard not to just fall into that same pattern with that person or with that particular environment. 
And we see that in terms of all kinds of trauma and oppressive patterns in our society, things like racism and sexism and classism and you know other ways that we relate to difference that seem so resistant to change or the change comes you know a lot more slowly than maybe we'd like to be the fear and the yeah just the not really wanting to deal with the underlying patterns in our mind not wanting to own them uncover them. So I thought, you know, given that it's Easter and given this great tradition of human beings being interested in stepping out of the imprisonment of habit, cultural habit, cultural conditioning, our personal conditioning, feeling oppressed by the force of habit, even the force of genetic conditioning, let alone cultural conditioning. Like how do we, how can we, can we step outside? Is there freedom with this experience, within this experience of being a human being with a conditioned mind, with a conditioned body? And so I came upon, it's this very interesting sutta that I came up with because the Buddha is talking about change, and the first simile he uses involves a chicken and an egg, which I thought was very much in line with Easter. Talk about pagan symbols, right? Bunnies, eggs, you know, this whole thing of transformation from this little white thing, and then a little chick comes out. So the, the first image the Buddha uses in this talk is he, you know, describes the mother hen, having laid some eggs, the eggs are there, the mother hen really wants the chicks to come out and be chicks, you know, to crack their way out of the egg, chip their way out of the egg. And so what does the mother hen do? She really wishes, you know, hopes, wants the chicks to break out. You know, just as like very intent, full of desire, hope, that the chicks come out. And the point the Buddha makes here is, does that affect? No. Doesn't the desire, the wanting, the good, hopeful wishing has nothing to do with whether the chicks are able to get out of the shells and become chickens. Because the actual cause is that the mother hen, you know, has to sit on the eggs. They need a certain temperature. They need certain supporting conditions, and then the chicks are going to do what they have to do. They'll have the strength they will have developed, have the muscular you know, strength and the genetic coating to sort of do their whatever they do to chip their way out of the egg and get out. So this is the first teaching the Buddha gives us. It's like as much as you know, each of us in our own way, when we notice habit energy, whether it's our personal habit energy or the habit energy of our culture or society in our cycles of suffering and the way ignorance works in our own mind or culturally, you know, we can talk a good talk about how we want to be different, how we want society to be different, we want the world to be different. <laughs> that goes on a lot, especially nowadays. 
with the internet, with articles, and then you can comment, and then you can comment about the comments and comment about the comments of the comments. And I don't know if you ever look down there. Maybe some of you are those so-called trolls. <laughs> but anyway, it's like we worry, we think, we talk a lot about how we want things to be different than they are. Right? And what that all does, for the most part, is make us tight and feed divisiveness, hate, judgment. Right? We, and we just literally tie the heart up you know, entangle the heart in these threads of emotion, tight emotions, really. And uh, this reminds me of a line from one of Saida Utejaniya's teachings. He's a Burmese monk, Buddhist monk, and uh, comes to the West, teaches wonderful monk. I've been able to study, do a number of retreats with him now, and he has this great line. Some of you have heard me say this about wisdom which I think is really helps us understand what this force of wisdom is in our minds. And remember, wisdom, like everything else, isn't personal. It's a natural force, just like ignorance, greed, hate, distraction, denial. These are also natural habits. They have, each in each of our minds, you know, they have some momentum. They have been reinforced, built up have some force in each of our minds. Same with wisdom. Wisdom is an impersonal force that has either been cultivated, watered, strengthened, has more and more momentum, or it's been weakened, you know, because it hasn't been fed, hasn't been supported. But anyway, here's this great definition of what wisdom is. He said, wisdom is always interested in causes. How has this come to be? Whether it's like we're embodying a relatively wholesome state of mind in a moment, what wisdom is interested in, what wisdom does in the mind, it goes, how has this relatively wholesome state come to be? Or if we're being, if we're sort of caught in some negative reactive state of mind, how has this negative reactive state of mind come to be? What were the supporting causes? So that when those supporting causes are there, then the mind expresses this negativity. And when those supporting causes aren't there, this negative reactive state of mind does not arise. Or when I relate to this unwholesome state of mind in this way, it gets stronger. Or when I relate in this other way, it falls away. Wisdom is always interested in causes. Or in more of a Buddhist way of saying, you'd say, wisdom reads karma. Wisdom sees things from the point of view of karma, this interdependent, conditional, or lawful unfolding, that things unfold according to causes and conditions. It's complex. It's interdependent. It isn't like some straight linear progression. Even though we can't almost ever clearly read all the forces that are are at play in the natural conditional unfolding, we can be assured there is a lawful conditional unfolding. Whether we're looking at our mind, whether we're looking at particular family dynamic or global dynamic, it's lawful. We live in a lawful conditional world internally in terms of our own 
internal psychological dynamic, emotional dynamic, in our fa- every system whatsoever, lawful, impersonal, conditional. So wisdom, when we talk about wisdom, it isn't that like I'm smarter than someone else. It's just that there is this natural force that's curious about the conditional unfolding. When that's strong in our mind, we say there's a lot of wisdom because the part of the mind, as we're doing our life, living the life, is studying this thing we call our life as a lawful conditioning and unfolding. And it's correlating. Oh yeah, when there's this attitude, active, and experience is being framed through that attitude, then this is how it turns out. This is what gets set in motion, like nobody likes me, nobody wants to be around me. Or when this other attitude is there, active framing experience, then things work out a lot better. Right? It's making these correlations. Same, not just in terms of studying our own mind, but just in observing all those around us. You know, oh yeah, when it's like this, this tends to unfold. Without even the mind concluding, like telling itself what it just saw, we don't have to tell ourselves a story about the conditional unfolding to learn from the conditional unfolding. We just need to be aware, just that reflective awareness, that tracking, basically tracking present moment experience in a reflective way, as opposed to an autopilot way. Right? Like I always mention, you can drive home without being aware, yet you're conscious to make the right turns. You end up at the right place, but you weren't really reflectively aware that you were driving when you were driving, you were turning right when you were turning right. In a way, you were oblivious. You were on autopilot. But in a sense, there was consciousness making sure you weren't too close to the cars in front of you and you know all that stuff. So the awareness, the reflective awareness, mindful awareness that we talk about means that there's a part of the mind that's reflective, or you could use the word, there's part of the mind that's comprehending causes and conditions, the conditional unfolding, or there's wisdom interested in causes, like how this is a lawful conditional unfolding. Oh yeah, when, it, when there's this, there's that. When the mind is relating in this way, this tends to arise. Right? It's comprehending the lawfulness. That's what leads to insight. That's what leads the mind to becoming wiser, kinder, more skillful, is this continuity of awareness that is able to track causes, see the lawfulness, how freedom arises, how contraction arises, how wisdom arises, more wisdom, how less wisdom comes to be. So like a mother hen that wants her chicks to hatch, right? That desire for offspring or whatever it is that's motivating that hen. We want to be free. We want to be less burdened by life, less contracted, less afraid, right? Less alienated. So wanting that isn't the cause. Tracking the causes... That's the cause for becoming the person we aspire to become. 
realizing that freedom we aspire to or that safety or that unconditional love, however you express your aspiration, it's by studying the causes. If you study the causes, you will get to where you can go. If you don't bother, who knows where we'll end up, right? If we spend our life blaming, complaining, wanting, probably we'll end up tight. Because that itself is the cause for being tight. Wanting something to happen is immediately a tight state of mind. So we're practicing being tight. How could practicing being tight lead to release? Same with being afraid or being angry or irritated or complaining. Right then and there, when I'm complaining, when I've got a complaining mind, energetically, it's already tight. It's a weightful, heavy state of mind. So I'm getting better at that. I'm practicing that cause to be tight, not the cause of release. But when we're observing things in this conditional way, already there's a lot of space, that space of equanimity. This is a natural process. Let, let, Let me observe... Let me be curious. Let me be respectful of this, the lawfulness internally, externally. Let me live in alignment with the conditional nature of how it all happens. Well, then you can't help yourself from becoming wiser. It's going to happen. So that's the first part, the simile of the hen and what allows the chicks to hatch following the causes, like understanding, oh yeah, they need warmth. I'll give them warmth. That's what I do. Wanting doesn't help. But sitting on the eggs, that helps. Then he gives another simile in this discourse, which is, again, really, I think, even more provocative than the first. So there are three similes altogether. So the second simile is around uh, the handle of an axe. And he says, uh, so you imagine a carpenter using an axe. And he says, uh, so after 30 years of using the same axe handle, you know, it's like, to all that use, the hand that held that axe has actually made impressions into the wood. I mean, if you can imagine, 12 hours a day, every day, working that thing, that wood is going to be affected by that wear, the wear and tear of that person gripping the axe handle. In the image the Buddha uses, like again, he's talking about transformation, spiritual transformation. He says, if the carpenter really tried to assess, like, did did the fact that I used this axe today, did it change the handle? Would we be able to tell the difference between the morning and the end of a long workday? No. But after 30 years, would there be any doubt that there's been some wear and tear on that handle? Yeah. So this is the same thing like you have a sit and then you demand proof that the sit was valuable. You sit down for 30 minutes or an hour and it's like, yeah, but I need to see the little change in my mind. I need proof that the sit was useful. You're not going to find it. But after five years or ten years, you know, if you've been practicing that long, you've been sincere, you've sat most days, you've cultivated more mindfulness, more awareness in your daily life, you value being 
having that open, non-judging, relaxed presence more and more. It's just a natural value that you have instead of reactivity, valuing reactivity or fixed views. And then you ask yourself after 10 years of that sincere, relatively consistent practice, you know, boy, if this happened 10 years ago or when this happened 10 years ago, how would I have responded? And now that same sort of situation happens now and how do I respond? You would like see the axe handle after 30 years of day-to-day use. Oh yeah, something has happened. It's like some some places you see these stone walkways that were put in, you know, even BC, even 2,000 years ago. And you see like whether, I don't know what kind of stone was used, but even really hard stone, if wagon wheels have been running over that stone day after day for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe even a couple thousand years, or the Colorado River running through that earth, it can cut a canyon more than a mile deep, the Grand Canyon, right? We see these things. And somebody this morning shared a quote from a a well-known activist. Uh, His last name is Stone. I forget, maybe some of you know. I guess there's a movie at the, the film festival on Tuesday of this character, famous activist. Anybody know? I.F. Stone, maybe? That's something. Anyway, but he had, he had a line. Uh, somebody met him uh, at a nuclear proliferation uh, conference. This is back like 20 years ago. And, uh, and he had been at this sort of stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons for 20 years at that point. And this is in 92. So they started in the 70s, I guess. And this person who was here at Common Ground this morning said to him, like, aren't you frustrated that after 20 years, nations are still developing nuclear weapons, the the nuclear weapons are still proliferating, still a hot issue today, right? And uh, he had this great answer, and I don't know how close I'll get to repeating it. He said said something like, "If if you pee on a stone one time, it's not going to leave a mark. But if you pee every day, 20 years, or several times a day, 20 years, you know, it's probably going to leave a mark. And it's the same thing. It's like with our practice. It's like we just keep, we have enough confidence because being the, the idea in some sort of immediate sense of being aware, we have a sense, it makes sense rationally that being aware changes everything. Because acting out habit energy without awareness dooms us to acting out habit energy without awareness. Like just doing the same thing over and over again. Getting the same results, doing the same thing, getting the same results. I mean, it's really the history of humankind, right? You're getting a little too powerful. I think preemptive strike is in order. Or you've got something I want. I think I'm bigger than you are, so I'm going to take it. You know, I mean, we keep doing the same thing one way or another, getting the same result. So, doing something different, like cultivating awareness, it makes sense in so many ways, but we have to 
Like, we have to undertake it. We actually have to commit some time to it without any guarantee. I mean, we get like sort of a guarantee from the people like the Buddha who says, you know, if you do this, you're going to get results. But you have to do it over a period of time and you have to do it with sincerity, like as if it matters. So when we come back to the body, like one of our techniques is this whole body awareness, like I mentioned today in the guided meditation, we come back to the body. You can't do that in a superficial way because the whole point is to be real to be intimate. You can't do it in a casual way. It's like we actually have to be interested. And on the same time, we can't try too hard. Because like half of us, we're making the mistake of sort of going through the motions, but basically being complacent in our meditation. Yeah, we do it. We go to our meditation cushion or our meditation chair. We put in our time. But we're not really there when we're there, right? That's half of us. And the other half are like gung-ho, and they're over-efforting. Both of those are not the causes for change. The cause for change is a relaxed but clear presence. And the continuity of the relaxation and the continuity of the clarity. Together, that will transform the mind. Now, this last image is really in support of this point that I'm making, and then I'll open it up for discussion. And this is, I think, even a more provocative image for spiritual transformation. So we have the first image of a hen wanting her eggs to hatch and realizing that's not the cause. What is the cause? What actually supports? So just through trial and error, just like paying attention, correlating, oh, I notice when I sit on the eggs, they hatch. When I'm fretting about them hatching and wandering around and complaining, worrying, they don't hatch. Well, maybe I'll just sit on them, you know. And then, you know, lo and behold, you sit on them without being worried, and you realize they still hatch. I could be reading a good novel. As long as I sit on those eggs, they're going to hatch. I don't even need to want them to hatch because it has nothing to do with wanting. It has to do with causes and conditions, whether those eggs hatch. It's the same thing with awakening. It doesn't matter whether you think you're a Buddhist or whether you think the Buddha knew. But if you cultivate a calm, relaxed, and clear, continuous awareness in your life, you will transform all of your habit energies. Because habits only persist when they're not seen with a calm, clear and continuous awareness. When you're calm, when the mind is calm and clear, continuously tracking the movement of habit, then all of a sudden there's a choice. We're not under the foot of habit. We're not driven by habit. We're not a human being on autopilot. We're awake. Right? There's no choice unless there's awareness. Right? When we're living without awareness, we're just... Whatever the strongest intention, predisposition, compulsion, whatever the strongest one is, we act it out. Or whatever one sort of passes through the moral lens, you know, like, oh, don't do that, you'd be bad. But all of that is happening on the level of habit. That's why we can go through the day without really being aware. But with awareness, we feel the force of habit. We still have habit. There's no going beyond habit. The habit will always show its hand. 
But with awareness, we know that's just habit. And I'm feeling it. And I always have the alternative to see it and feel it. But I don't have to act it out. Just because I'm seeing and feeling habit, we don't have to act it out. Because we have this other alternative. I can feel it and I can see it. And I can understand, I can comprehend. That's just habit. It feels like this. What should I do? I don't have to do the habit, but if it's a skillful habit, I can act it out. But if it's not skillful, I can just feel what it feels like to have that habit and do something differently, right? Some freedom. So this last image is even more provocative. The Buddha uses the image of a ship that's you know been sailing around, but in the wintertime, they pull it up, put it on dry dock or whatever they did back at the time of the Buddha. They'll get it out of the water. But yet, in India, you know, instead of winter here, it was like monsoon rains or wind, bright sun. And he talks about how the rigging, the sails, the ropes, all that stuff would rot away. Again, it's like a really gradual. And he said, in the same way, this is what happens to the habit energies, the unwholesome, unhelpful habit energies of being greedy, being needy, being stingy, being reactive, being angry, complaining about life, not doing being the way we want it to be. All of those habits start to get weathered, start to fall apart, start to rot. When they're in the, in the sphere of awareness, right? The awareness is like weather. And it's just a matter of time before all the negativity, all the self-centered tendencies, dramas, reactive patterns wear out. They just don't hold up in the light of awareness. And just as a simple example, like, you know how it is. It's not that hard for us to act out in a petty, take things in a petty way. You know, my wife, you know, forgets to do something, I can be really petty about it. But when I'm aware, it's really hard to be petty or judgmental or hateful when I'm aware, right? I mean, we do it, but it's so painful to be acting out these habits in the light of awareness. Not a judging awareness, just in the same way Here's a really good example. If you have a friend who you really value as being a pretty together person, pretty stable, pretty calm, clear-minded, good habits, right? You know, it's not so easy for us to be a jerk in front of that, that good friend. If we really want to complain and, and maliciously gossip, we go to a friend that's not so good, right? <laughs> like somebody who will let us get into it. But we wouldn't do it to that, you know, that person that we sort of see as being somebody with some real wisdom, some real goodness. Because we would feel what? Ashamed. We would feel like, oh my God. It's like their moral, their clar- morality, their clarity. We would, it would be a mirror and we realize this isn't helping. Like whatever I'm acting out here, it's like, I don't really want to do it. And so we can have that role for ourselves. That's what wisdom does, that reflective awareness. When we act like a jerk, we act in a mean-spirited way. It's not that that awareness, that wisdom is judging. It's just reflecting it like a mirror would. Well, 
this is what's happening. This is what that looks like. You know, this is what you look like. In the same way, if we were forced, if we had like the best editor, best cinematographer and editor, and they were very quick. And so at the end of the day, before you could go to sleep, you had to watch a 30-minute, very skillfully edited videotape of your day, like really capturing every karmic act internally and then what it set in motion around you and other people's lives. And you just saw in living color, you know, all of your complaining, all of your skill and lack of skill. Can you imagine how wise we'd be right now? <laughs> because it would be so intolerable to keep seeing, like that movie uh, with uh, Groundhog's Day. Who is that actor? Uh, Bill Murray. Yeah, right? It's like, if you had to see it day in, day out, you would learn from your mistakes. Oh, yeah, that does not work. I mean, maybe with some of you, it's like in the Zen tradition, they have this image of a chariot and being pulled by a horse, of course. And like some horses, to get it to do what you want, you really have to beat it with the whip. But other horses, you know, the charioteer just needs to make a little clicking sound, little, you know, and then the the horse knows what to do. It's a sharp horse. It doesn't need to get beaten. You wouldn't beat that horse. Well, what kind of human being are we? Do we need life or karma or cause and effect to really beat us down like, oh my God, when am I going to learn overeating doesn't help? Now, how many times, I think about that time, I just had my 59th birthday. It's like, how many times, I, I had Easter dinner with the family today, and it's like, I mean, I ate a lot, but I didn't overeat. And it's like, I, it occurred to me at the end of the meal, like, yeah, I could eat a lot more, but I'm learning. Like, <laughs> just because there's a lot of good food, I don't have to eat it all. Or just because someone's pushing my buttons, I don't have to pick a fight. Maybe I'm not the person to reflect back that this person, I think, is saying something stupid. Maybe this is the time for me to say something but maybe it's not. I don't have to do it reflexively. I can actually consider, am I capable of saying something without saying it from aversion? Can I say it because I actually love this person and this moment seems, and I seem to be the right person to say something in this moment. So I'm doing it with the right intention, having picked the right time, with the right tone of voice, right choice of words, yeah, I offer it as a gift. But that's not usually how we do it. You know, usually we do it because we're averse. And we don't like that feeling averse, and so we're going to dish something back to the person. And of course it's not going to work. You know, we just get a reaction. It just sort of builds. And this is like what goes for political debate in our country. So again, these three images you can use like in assessing and understanding your own commitment to transformation, to not being imprisoned by the cultural conditioning we were born into, the genetic conditioning of being an animal. I mean, we're an animal. We have the genetic conditioning of all the mammals and all the reptiles and all, right? We're born into this genetic conditioning. We're born into culture. This mind was conditioned by Leave it to Beaver and My Three Sons and and a lot of other much worse kind of conditioning. You know, and even 
I was talking to a friend uh, today too about, you know, just like on one side of my family, my grandparents coming from Poland, you know, and just all of the conditioning of Eastern Europe and what that, you know, and then here in the States and I'm the continuation of all of the limitations, all the narrowness of that kind of conditioning. Whether I'm aware of it or not, I'm the continuation of all that. Now, not all, not all of that conditioning is bad, right? Part of the conditioning was you work hard, you get results, right? So there's like a lot of the kind of cultural and genetic conditioning I appreciate. But a lot of it, as I wake up, as I own it and see it more clearly, you know, it's humiliating to see that kind of conditioning moving in my heart, my mind. But there it is. It's not personal, but we're responsible. And so we're responsible to see what we can do about it, where we can, like the mother hen, realize that when you sit on eggs, they hatch. When you complain, when you worry, when you want, you just get tight. It doesn't lead to good things happening. Good things happen when the right supporting causes are there for good things to happen. So we need to figure out like what actually sets in motion this heart, this mind being more kind, more wise, more skillful. And then do that, right? Follow the supporting causes. And then the, the next image of the axe handle wearing down after a long, long time, so much so that there is no doubt this mind is different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I've been practicing for 35 years, pretty sincerely, pretty regularly, almost every day. I can say definitively that my mind is not like it was back when I was 24 years old and started my practice. It's a different mind. It has changed. Like that third simile of the weathering, right? the rigging, all my habit energies, all the ways my mind constructs meaning, relates to the world, it has been exposed over and over again in little moments, sometimes with some continuity, to the light of awareness, this non-judging but very clear, penetrating, continuous, wise, kind presence. And that changes the causes and conditions of the mind, the nature, the habit, energy of the mind. You can't stay a jerk forever if you're aware of being a jerk. I guarantee it. You can't stay stay stingy if you're aware of stinginess, not judging your stinginess, but just aware of how you're afraid, how you're stingy, how you're controlling, how you want to give up. If you're aware of these habits in a non-judging, in a clear way, really seeing how they get set in motion, how they get reinforced, really seeing other possibilities, the mind as a movement of nature, will take another way. It won't just keep doing the same thing and getting the same you know, bump on the, on the head, like that poem I read a number of months ago, but some of you know it. I forget the um, author or the poet's name, but it's the something, the autobiography in five chapters. Anybody know the poet's name? Portia, is that right? Anyway... But, you know, it's like you fall in the hole and you think it's somebody else's fault. Like, God damn it, who put this hole there? Eventually, after a few more chapters, you fall in the hole and you realize it's my fault. I did it. I was wrong. And you get yourself out of that hole. 
And eventually, you know enough like to walk around the hall. And eventually, you don't even go down that street anymore. You go down some other street where there isn't a hall. You live a different kind of life. And this is the thing about understanding habits. You know, we need to fall in the hole enough time to realize this is a hole. This isn't help. Right? And own it like, what is this mind doing? This is the one thing I can have something to say. Like, what kind of meaning is my mind creating? What kind of story is my mind repeating? Is there another kind of story I can tell myself? Another kind of choice that can be made? So we have 15 minutes. Be nice to hear. Like one of the things you might share is just your own uh, sense of transformation and what has supported real change and how your mind operates in the world. And then, of course, any questions you have or any comments about practice. So remember to point the mic right at your mouth like that. And remember also on Sunday nights we record. We put the talks up on the Internet. So you can keep that in mind when you share what you're going to share. Who'd like to begin? Yeah, please. You want to pass the mic, second row of chairs? So it was interesting how you brought up um, being aware of your drive back home. Um, Be aware of your... Or being aware of your drive back home. Oh, yeah. Um, So when I was driving here, I was trying to be aware of my drive. And I would get on the highway. I would speed up. I could feel the bumps. Uh, then I would get off at an exit. I would be aware of the turn and everything. But then there were the moments where, like, the car in front of me would slam on the brakes, and then I would have to react really quickly. And that just sort of, like, interrupted my, I guess, relaxed state. Or a biker might cross in front of me, for example. So I guess it, it just kind of felt like, uh, like I was so relaxed, and then all of a sudden I had to just react really quickly. And I feel like a lot of times in life that occurs where like you you have to react in the moment. Yeah, right. But the more we practice, like the sitting practice is on purpose where there aren't too many surprises, right? You, you find a place in your home that's relatively quiet. You shut your cell phone off. You put the pets in the other room. You tell the people you live with, leave me alone for 30 minutes or whatever. So you're on purpose creating a situation where there will be fewer surprises. And then you get a little bit more confidence, a little bit more continuity, moments, you know, periods of continuity, right? Not the whole sit, of course. A continuity of that balanced, relaxed, clear awareness, right? And then uh, it slowly builds. And then, like, you'll notice, I, I remember one of my earlier retreats where I was starting to get some momentum. And uh, I noticed one time, for example, someone sneezed, I think, and it was like an earthquake because I was really sensitive, but I wasn't aware. I was like really into being quiet. And so when the sneeze came in, the sound of the sneeze, it just felt like this earthquake, like this huge insult in the mind. And then a little later in the retreat, it was a 10-day retreat, same sort of thing happened where someone made a loud sound. I know it was a sneeze or a cough or something like that. But this time... It, it sort of, same sort of powerful impact, but there was no resistance. There was no part of the mind uh, resisting. It still had a huge thing because the room was relatively quiet, and then it wasn't. But it just moved right through, and then there was no reverberation, no somebody thinking there was a problem that someone interrupted the quiet. 
And so this is what we start discovering. And I'll give you another example. I was doing a lot of practice. This is when I lived in Berkeley. And um, I was driving across the Bay Bridge. Uh, and some of you know it's like five lanes in each direction. I was right in the middle lane. It was late at night. So it's always a lot of traffic, but it wasn't like car to car. And somebody had stalled right in the middle lane of five lanes, right? And I was in that lane. And I was just sort of cruising. Like I said, there weren't too many cars. So by the time I saw it, I only could slam on the brakes. And so I was just skidding. I, there was like enough cars in the other lanes that I just couldn't guess and, and kind of avoid it. So I just slammed on the brakes. And of course, all that happened without thinking. And slowly as I was skidding, my car started turning and it was a stick. So then the, it stalls because, you know, I didn't forgot the clutch or whatever. And, uh, and so there I was, car not stopped. And other cars doing the same thing, you know. And I just realized, you know, the starting up of the car and putting it in gear and finding the timing to get in and slam on the accelerator to get up to speed, it all just happened. And with a lot of clarity. I wasn't trying to be mindful, but there was just enough momentum that even in a really intense place, I didn't lose the continuity of awareness. And I remember, like, a few seconds as I was sort of up to speed, instead of having compassion for the person in the middle of the freeway, I noticed this very interesting thought like, oh, now that I'm out of trouble, should I panic? Should I freak out about what just happened? And then it was like, no, I don't have to do that because it's not dangerous now. You know, I'm just driving on the freeway again. And it was like a very, like, I could have gotten into this sort of proliferation about, oh, my God. What just happened? But I realized it's already over with, so I don't need to do that. And it was just like, I drove home. And it was just such an interesting thing to see that the continuity could even continue through the traffic, you know, or the accident or the near accident. And that's what we aspire to. But we, we will lose it. Like instinct will just kick in, just like, the fight or flight, it just sort of takes over. And there's reason, evolutionary reasons, that it's going to kick in. But the thing about awareness is it can be aware even in that, but that's more like postgraduate level practice as opposed to you're in a quiet room, the body isn't too uncomfortable, and you get a little 10 seconds of continuity and then distracted, and then five seconds of continuity and then distracted. And then the distraction might be three or four minutes little mental proliferation, obsessive thinking, and then back for a few moments. Maybe if you've got some momentum or you're lucky or whatever, you might have a couple minutes of relative continuity of awareness, right? But it kind of comes and goes. But we learn a lot starting over after the distraction. And you might have realized that even with the little episode of the bike or the person slamming on the, the brakes, that the moments that are interesting, it isn't that you lost the continuity of awareness, but how your mind related when the awareness came back online. Was there judgment? Or was it really graceful? Like, oh yeah, lost, being lost. Now, no longer being lost is like this, right? Don't need to judge it. Because already the mind is back. Why would you judge it? You're already aware that you were lost. That's the way it is. So it's too late to be judgmental, (laughs) or to try to fix it, because it's already righted itself, right? The mind is already now aware that it was lost in thought, or lost in that 
sort of reflexive reaction while, while driving. Yeah, thanks for sharing that and bringing that up. Yeah, please, you want to pass it over to Lynn? Hi, I'm Lynn. <clears throat> thanks, Mark. A lot of what, so much of what you said tonight really resonated with me. Um, one thing that stuck, or one thing that's really changed my life has been um, looking at causes, like you mentioned, to sort of dedicate myself. Maybe a little louder, Lynn. To sort of dedicate myself, just the importance of um, why is it like this? What's being known right now in this moment? And why is my habit energy so strong? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Can I just intersect? So just because it's important, imprint, use the word how. How did this come to be? Because why kind of, it just as language, on the level of language, tends to make it more like, wanting to know the reasons why. It's more of a personal, as opposed to the mechanics, the cause and effect mechanics. How does this happen? How is this getting supported? Does that make Good sense? Good point. It doesn't it makes... change your point, just the language. No, it's important point. because that kind of leads to what I was going to mention or talk about is the awareness has come, but I haven't, I don't have an axe handle with, you know, ridges in it. I'm a fairly uh, new practitioner, you know, just a couple of years. And so paying attention to causes is painful because I was attached to my stories. I was sure I was right and I was a victim. And, you know, all this stuff ends up be starting to be dismantled. And um, it's kind of odd when I talk if I do talk to a family member or somebody about meditation and they, they equate it with navel gazing or checking out or something, this is the hardest. These last couple of years have not been easy because um, there's so much work to do. <laughs> you know, There's so much dismantling and unpacking of how I, the story that I thought was a true story that now I, it's full of holes. I look at it and go, oh, no, it is, you know, that's not, exactly how that occurred it was a story that made me feel better you know so now it's about getting honest it's about um struggling with habit energy and um it's certainly not navel gazing or a bliss trip it's no, work, no, no, no. you know yeah and the the interesting thing is it's like well what's to stop us from going back to delusion or if you put a nicer word on it like being an ordinary human being. Nothing. So if we thought that that was the easy way, we would go back. But it just turns out that the hard way is the easy way. Because there's nothing harder than continuing on in our sort of diluted or habit energy ways, because then nothing ever changes. And one of the things that changes everything is when we see that, we see how much tension how much suffering is embedded in our habits. That breaks our heart, and we're willing to do the hard way, which turns out to be the easy way. It's easy because it actually changes things. But it's painful, as you say. And it's true, we should have a little warning, like any of you who are here for the first night, <laughs> that once you get a sense of this practice, one, it's hard to let it go, and two, at some point it gets really difficult, this practice. Because we start to see things that are really hard to see. 
but it's liberating. And this is the thing about the practice. It's liberating, but it's painful. It's like healing is often painful. We've got to hit bottom or we have to sort of get through that healing crisis a lot of the time. But if anybody knows a better way, they should talk about it. Like we could come, we could gather like this on Sunday night and like take turns talking about things that are really good distractions. Like, you know, the next thing, I, the next thing we can binge on on Netflix. You know, and how many episodes without take care of how many nights? Like after work, you know, in good restaurants, interesting restaurants, and ways to get money without working too hard, and so we can keep up with our entertainments and just try to fill up the space of our lives until we don't have a life anymore. And if we really, that's sort of what culture does. I mean, that's sort of the mainstream vibe in the culture. And we're all invited. No one's making us sort of do this other way. But if you end up showing up at a place like Common Ground regularly, somehow, usually, you're starting to see the limitations of that approach to living. I mean, we're all participating. We got one foot in that world, probably, maybe one and nine-tenths of a foot in that world. And we have one-tenth of a foot in this other world, you know, and then maybe over time we have one foot in both worlds. And then, you know, the sort of well-practiced nuns and monks, people who are sort of full-time awareness folks, maybe they're, you know, two-thirds in and one-third still out, you know, still worldly. Even monks have their computers, you know, they have their excuses for needing internet access, it's interesting. I know a lot of monks and nuns, and it's like they get pulled in too to things. And instead of complaining about what kind of car they have, it's like what sort of alms bowl they have, or you know how new their robes are, or things like that. Because you know, in this tradition, monks and nuns aren't allowed to have much, but they can have some things. Any last? We have time for just one more comment. Yeah, I'm going to pass the mic up here. You get our closing thought. Well, um, I used to work for a bird breeder, and uh, one of the practices we had at the aviary was to hold up the egg to the light and to see if the cells were developing. So it doesn't matter how long the hen sits on the egg if the egg has not been conceived. And in order for an egg to be conceived, obviously, there needs to be a rooster and a hen. So the female and the male aspect coming together in divine union creates the cell development of the egg and the conception. So that's, I think, um, just something I wanted to share that it's really the, the trilogy. You know, it's the triad of creator the feminine and the masculine energy coming together to create divine growth. Yeah. There are many causes and conditions, but we get to play with only the thing we get to play with. Like our role is specific to our role, like the hen's role at that point, having the four or five eggs or whatever it might be. It's like her role in supporting the hatching of the chicks that's what she has to realize, the one thing she can do at that point. Sit on the eggs, I mean, just to simplify it, or not. And that's the thing, like, when we have a mind state, what's the one thing we can do? Well, we can be aware of it, 
Or the alternative is to just be under the spell of habit, habit energies. And that's the thing, to realize that there's always something, like in terms of developing wisdom and freedom, there's always one thing we can do, which is this reflective awareness. Oh, it's like this. We can be intimate with the conditions, with what's showing up in the moment. And that, now you don't have to believe this, you can check it out. But what the Buddha says, that is a powerful catalyst for change. Being reflectively aware of the conditional unfolding of our lives, of the moment, changes things. And you can just see if that's true for you. So we need to leave it here. We'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths. Putting down everything. Noticing how natural awareness is. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.